recorded live. Hey everybody, it's uh, Chris here with my co-host Ross. It's another episode of Super Theism. And today, as promised, or tonight, we're going to be starting to read out of Tracing Our White Ancestors by Frederick Haberman. And kind of to preface this a little bit is, uh, well... As we've kind of mentioned in previous calls before, we affirm the belief that uh, Adam was the first uh, Caucasian or Caucasoid. Um, as we've said in previous calls, he didn't necessarily, we don't believe he, he necessarily had white skin. Um, he could have been more uh, almost like bronze or golden. But he was definitely, uh, we definitely affirm that he was. Uh, the first Caucasoid type um, in terms of racial type. And uh, I actually believe that you can deduce this out of the Bible. Would you agree with that, Ross? Yeah, it certainly... Even though it's, uh, it's somewhat veiled on the surface, but if you do... Yeah, yeah if you dig a little bit under the surface, I, I believe you can deduce it from the Bible. There's certainly evidence to entertain it seriously yeah. as a possibility. Uh well, one of those re- one of those uh possible ways you could deduce it from the Bible, I, I believe, is that uh um if you look into the, the, the meaning of the Hebrew word Adam, it actually means uh one who uh can show blood in the face or who can blush. And if you investigate this if you investigate all the uh, different races of people, you'll actually find that this is a, uh, as far as I've uh, discovered, this is a pretty much an exclusive characteristic of the, the Caucasoid people. Um, would you agree with that, Ross? Or uh, I've never seen people of other colors blush. I I can't either way for sure, but mm-hmm. it certainly does isn't uh, easy to see if the other ones do blush. I've only ever seen yeah. it in a white face, so yeah. I mean, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, if it if it literally means to show blood in the face, you know, you would have to even if the other races could blush, but they couldn't, but they didn't have the, the you know, they didn't they couldn't actually show it in the face. You know, you yeah. think that would disqualify them? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and you know, again, as we've as we've said in previous calls, you know, it's not about in in deduction. It's not about whether these propositions are actually true or not. It's just about whether you know what what conclusions necessarily follow from um, the premises in a deductive argument if you assume that they're true. You know, and then you reason from them in a valid way, what conclusions necessarily follow? And, and then what should you expect to see? You know what I mean? Right. When you, uh, you know, deduce these conclusions and then compare them with reality. And if if you do assume these premises or these propositions are true, you'll see that they do conform with the rest of Scripture. For instance, David was described as having uh, red hair, and also white skin. Um, and also, there, 
all the other descriptions of the Israelites, they're all described as a white-skinned people in the Bible. In every single instance that they're described, there's only one instance where you could make the case, that, and that's the one. Uh, one of the females in the the Song of Solomon was described as dark. But as far as I've I can tell, that's just because uh, that was like a sun that was caused by the sun. Mm-hmm. It was a. Uh, it said the the woman the Shunammitess or the beloved it calls her in in some of those headings. It says that her brothers were harsh to her. They made her work outside or something like that. Yeah, she was darkened by the sun, right? Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, it fits the profile of, you know, it, it's consistent. And, uh, you know, there's they had various different hair colors as well. Black hair, brown hair, red hair, but white skin. And, uh, you know, facial hair as well, that's a huge thing as well because uh, that also, that limits your options, you know, just right there. You know, all, all these things combined really, they really only reduce to the Caucasoid race. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, Asiatics, they don't naturally grow facial hair, at least. Not to the point where you think that God would would actually make a, a commandment, you know, to to nominally not uh, cut your beard. You know what I mean, or not harm your beard. So it must have been yeah. a it must have been a uh, you know nominal characteristic of this racial type for him to actually make a law about that. Not just some and, uh, that you couldn't tell whether it was cut or not. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, also, uh, well, I was going to make a comment about them potentially uh, growing long hair, but I guess, um, I guess Asiatics can do that as well. On the face or on the head? On the head. Because, uh, like, the, for instance, the uh, um, the Nazarites, you know, they they were supposed to grow their hair out long. So I presuppose that they could grow their hair long. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I guess an Asiatic could do that. I'm not really sure though about an Asiatics if they can grow their if their hair on their head grows not long like that naturally, I guess I'm not sure. I'm but, not sure uh, I mean, yeah, I would have to look into that more. Couldn't say. Yeah. I know a lot of people, people will appeal to like how Christ is described in Revelation and attempt to claim that like he's a, he's a Negroid from that or something. Okay, first of all, it describes his skin as being like burnished brass, right? Uh-huh. Go compare the color of brass to a negroid skin color. <laughs> Negroids don't have brass-colored skin. They have black skin. Right? Yeah. They're very, very dark brown skin. It's not brass-colored. Brass is like a golden... You know what I mean? It's like a mm-hmm. golden color. Yeah, with maybe a slight... uh 
subdued grayish tint to it, but yeah, yeah. goldenish. Huh? Which is, you know, like, would be a Caucasian person. Um who's been in the sun, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it also describes his, you know, his hair. It's, you know, he had full facial hair, and it fits a Caucasoid profile. And, well, that's actually also confirmed and is consistent with uh, uh, the Shroud of Turin, if you accept or assume that that's authentic, which I do, you know. Because, uh, I mean, that's, Christ is depicted as having Caucasoid features on that artifact. Very, pretty clear Caucasoid features. Would you agree with that? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, basically, the depiction is consistent with how he's basically been portrayed, like, throughout the millennia. I mean, (laughs) Yeah, Until the so. recent uh, <laughs> We Was Kings propaganda. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the uh, he, the black Hebrew-Israelite revisionism, which I think is actually promoted. That's uh, like tier two propaganda. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very clearly promoted. Just go on YouTube and type in, who are the real Israelites? And I'm pretty sure your first result is going to be a black Hebrew-Israelite video. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, I think the truth is in the suppressed third view, which is the view that you never really hear about. And if you do hear about it, it's basically loaded and blanketed with negative connotations, like in the uh, Christian identity movement. I think that that's because that's where the truth is. The truth is in the Christian identity movement, right? Yeah. That's why it provokes such an offensive reaction, because it's been deliberately been, you know. And for the... It's been designed to do that. Okay, go ahead. And for the white people who aren't familiar with that or have discounted it as some archaic 18th century misunderstanding, they're going to, you know, when this stuff becomes more known... Um, they're going to laugh it off as, oh, now y'all are doing what the We Was Kings, you know, the Black Hebrew Israelites people are doing, but you just made it about white people. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they'll want to reject it because it'll seem laughable at that point. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's also uh, consistent and coherent with the reality today of uh, white genocide. Um Western white man being targeted above any every other race, you know, pretty specifically, um, you know, for extermination, you know, with all this uh, forced immigration and racial integration and um, false guilt, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it would it would totally make sense if you know these people were. You know the Adamites, the chosen, and, and the majority of them also would be the uh, the chosen people. You know, from uh, um, Jacob. You know, Israel, Israelites. Yep. 
So, so anyway, I will begin here. Tracing our white ancestors, it says, were they descendants of apes or of Adam? It says, quote, our eyes are holden that we cannot see things that stare us in the face until the hour arrives when the mind is ripened. Then we behold them, and the time when we saw them not is like a dream. End quote. That was from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. So, chapter one. You ready? Yep. Okay. It's called uh, Missing Links. When Charles Kingsley chose the title of Westward Ho for his story of adventure in the age of Elizabeth, he expressed in that title that age-long urge of the race, quote, Der Drang Nach Westen, end quote, as the Germans call it. So I probably butchered that German phrase, so I apologize, but to push forward towards the setting sun. It was on the eastern shore that our nation was born, and gradually it spread towards the west, towards the Alleghenies and the plains of Ohio, then onwards to the Mississippi and the western prairies, and finally across the Rockies and the Sierras and down the Pacific Slope to the Golden Gate. Several American authors during the Depression have reviewed those various stages and the spread of our civilization towards the Golden West and have reminded the perplexed people of America that we have reached the last frontier as far as our material progress is concerned. But others, again, can see farther than their brothers that America has reached a new and spiritual frontier, and so America has. Beyond the Golden Gate, the sun dips into the Pacific to rise again Phoenix-like every morning in the east, bringing in a new day. Although the sun is sinking today upon the material expansion of America, and for over three years the dark night of the Depression has overshadowed us, we may be sure that there is a morning coming, and with it a sunrise, when a new phoenix will arise, quote, with healing in his wings, end quote. The story of the colonization and founding of America is so well known that it is useless even to review it here. From the east, from Europe, our ancestors came. From the British Isles, from Holland, Germany, Switzerland, France, and the Scandinavian countries came the people that gave America her character. With the history of these countries, we are not concerned. We can read their story in every library. We are merely interested here in the question of the race from which they sprang, the so-called Anglo-Saxon race and their origin. No matter how long they live there, whether for one or for 2,000 or more years, what we want to investigate here is, where did they come from? Did they originate in Europe or did they not? If they were anything like their sons, the pioneers of America, they were not content to stay forever in one place, but kept moving, pressing ever from the east toward the west. Such indeed are the facts, as every evidence we have will show. As our fathers moved westward, let us therefore retrace their coming in an easterly direction and start with the Atlantic seaboard of Western Europe. 
It is a curious phenomenon that our scientists, who are so interested in the origin and evolution of man, should be searching all over the earth for missing links, even deep beneath the surface of the ground, going back for tens and hundreds of thousands of years, while they know so little about the people of Europe of three and 4,000 years ago and overlook the many, quote, missing links lying and standing upon the ground of Western Europe. It is equally strange that our archaeologists should spend millions of dollars in years of labor digging up the ruins of Egypt and Mesopotamia, of Central America, and the Indian relics of North America, while no efforts are being made to solve the mysteries of Stonehenge and Avebury, Avebury and other British stone circles. Our great Ralph Waldo, Emer Waldo Emerson even expressed his surprise at this in his essay on Stonehenge, quote, the chief mystery is that any mystery should have been allowed to settle on so remarkable a monument in a country on which all the muses have kept their eyes now for 1,800 years. We are not yet too late to learn much more than is known of this structure. Some diligent fellows or layered will arrive, stone by stone, at the whole history. By that exhaustive British sense and perseverance, so whimsical in its choice of objects, which leaves its own Stonehenge or choir guar to the rabbits, whilst it opens pyramids and uncovers Nineveh. Stonehenge, in virtue of the simplicity of its plan and its good preservation, is as if new and recent. And a thousand years hence, men will thank this age for the accurate history it will eliminate. End quote. From the south of Portugal northward along the Bay of Biscay in Brittany, along the western side of the British Isles, as far north as the Orkneys and into Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, we find gigantic stones and stone structures erected by the hand of early man. Several types of those structures have been defined. Menhirs, or quote, long stones, standing on end. Dolmens, or table stones house-like structures with stone slabs or boulders for walls and roof. Most of the latter, serving originally as tombs, were covered with mounds of dirt and are called tumuli. A good description of these structures the reader will find in the July number of the National Geographic magazine of 1923, which also produces many beautiful illustrations of them. <coughs> Quote, Alignments are groups of menhirs arranged in line or in several parallel lines. Chromelecs are groups of menhirs standing in a circle or an arc of a circle, more rarely a square, usually terminating an alignment or surrounding a tumulus. The dimensions are sometimes incredible. The great menhir near Lokmariakare, now thrown down and broken, probably by an earthquake, was nearly 70 feet high and weighed some 375 tons. Some of the dolmens have a height of 18 to 20 feet, with roof slabs 20 by 35 feet in area and several feet thick. Baring Gould indeed mentions one near Nevez, or Finisterre, quote, whose capstone measured 45 feet in length and 27 in breadth and 6 feet thick, end quote. The alignments of Karnak in 10 to 13 parallel rows stretch across the country for nearly five miles. The tumulus of Mont St. Michael 
looks like a natural knoll, dwarfing the modern chapel which crowns it. It is hard to realize that it was heaped by human hands. All many years, chromelecks and alignments were from their beginning open to the sky. Dolmens and similar constructions were all originally covered by tumuli, since removed, in many cases, in the course of farming or building operations. End quote. The above is quoted from the magazine articles referred to, but its author makes no attempt to investigate who may have erected those gigantic structures. He is content to leave them as mysterious. In Britain, we find several ancient circles of large stones standing on end. The best known of them are Stonehenge, Avebury, and Keswick. All of them are known as Druidic circles. Avebury Circle on the Wiltshire... Downs is by far the largest and the most ancient of the stone circles in Britain. It is of gigantic dimensions and consists of three separate circles, two separate smaller circles within a larger one, the small ones having diameters of 325 feet and 350 feet respectively, while the larger one has a diameter of 1,260 feet. The circles were composed of large, unhewn, Sarsens, a Phoenician word for rock, weighing from 70 to 80 tons each. Only a few of them are left. The rest were broken up in the 18th century by firing, and the broken pieces were used by the neighboring farmers for building purposes, as witnessed and reported by Stukeli, the English antiquary of the 18th century. The only thing left intact about this once magnificent structure is an earth wall 44 feet in height and one mile in circumference. No other circle in the world can compare with it in size and construction except the one near Darab in Persia, observed by Sir William Owsley, one-time British minister to Persia. Here it is the first missing link that connects the early inhabitants of the British Isles with the people of early Asia. A second connecting link we find in the highlands of Tibet and Central Asia, where at Do Ring, which means, quote, the Lone Stone, end quote, Professor G.N. Rorick found a, quote, alignment similar to that of Karnak in Brittany. On page 415 of his Trails to Inmost Asia, he tells us, quote, the megalithic monuments of Doring, situated some 30 miles south of the Great Salt Lake of Pangong Shosha, date back to the pre-Buddhistic period of Tibetan history. They consist of, imp of important alignments of 18 rows of erect stone slabs. Each of these alignments was drawn from east to west, having at its western extremity a chromelech or stone circle consisting of several menhirs arranged more or less in a circle. The menhirs are vertically planted with a crude stone table or altar in front of them. It was evidently a sanctuary of some primitive cult, but what its age and use? If one compares the famous megalithic monuments of Karnak in Brittany to the discovered megaliths of Tibet, he is at once struck by the remarkable similarity of the two sets of monuments. The Karnak alignments are situated from east to west and have at their western extremity a cromlech or circle of stones. The Doring monuments have precisely the same arrangement. End quote. 
from Avaberry in England to Durab in Persia, and from Karnak in Brittany to Doring in Tibet are thousands of miles, yet the similarity of the monuments show that they were erected by one and the same people and for a special purpose. The first ray of light on the identity of the people who erected Avaberry Circle is gained from the name of Avaberry, which E.O. Gordon states in his prehistoric London is derived from, quote, Aberry. A-B-R-I-R-I. Now, the name of Abari was the name given by the people of Canaan to the Israelites when they entered that land after the Exodus, and that word is the ancient form of, quote, Hebrews, as we shall see in chapter 7. Yeah, from from Eber, or Eber, you know? Yeah. That's where... Uh, Hebrew came from. You can see the phonetic similarity to Aberi. 20 miles south of Avaburi Circle is located Stonehenge, the best known of British circles. It is composed of a circle of stones and an outer circular earth wall and ditch 360 feet in diameter. The circle of stones is composed of stones 13 feet in height, set 4 feet apart, and was once surmounted by a continuous row of lintel stones. Only 17 of these posts and lintels are still in position. Inside of this circle is an open circle of five trilithons, or groups of two immense pillar stones, 25 feet in height, surmounted by equally immense lintel stones. This group of trilithons, or gates, as they appear, is open towards the northeast. All the evidence connected with Stonehenge, as well as with other British circles, shows that those circles were erected as centers of worship and for astronomical observations. A site taken through the post stones of the southwestern trilithon towards the northeast across the two stones, shown on plate 3, gave the exact position of the sunrise at the summer solstice. The farthest stone on the picture is named, quote, the Friar's Heel a local expression, the word heel being derived from hele, H-E-L-E, the index stone or helios, the Greek word for sun. And over this stone, the sun arose on the morning of the summer solstice on the 22nd of June. Describing the scene of the sunrise, E.O. Gordon in his prehistoric London writes, quote, it is not until the whole orb, slightly flattened by the refraction of the air, has come into view that the requirements are fulfilled and then the coincidence is exact and the sun appears as if balanced on the apex of the stone. It is perhaps possible to imagine the effect, but to an actual spectator the picture is most impressive and the dark mass of the bowing stone as seen through the frame formed by the uprights in the center lintel of the circle adds brilliancy and completeness to the effect of a sight never to be forgotten, end quote. However, in the many centuries that have passed since the erection of Stonehenge Circle, the position of the sunrise at the summer solstice has changed. And as the rate of change is known to astronomers, it is possible to estimate the date for the erection of the circle. Today, the sun rises on the 22nd of June, no longer over the Hele, but on the south side of it, as plate 3 shows. 
Sir Norman Lockyer, the famous astronomer and discoverer of helium, determined from that change the period of about, of about 1700 B.C. as the time that Stonehenge Circle was erected. So that's interesting that he describes evidence of the sun, sun circuit changing. Cataclysm? Mm-hmm. Well, no. I just think the sun circuit has uh, grown outward. Uh, basically more and more possibly each year since, you know, because I think, you know, it, it uh, Robotham described this as well in his Zetetic Astronomy. He said that its, uh, its circuit has grown wider and wider. Huh. You know, from the center, you know? Yeah. Originally, it, uh, either was, I think, stationary over the center or it was just formed an extremely tight circle around the center. And it's gotten more and more, uh, it's increased. It's gotten wider more and more ever since. <clears throat> Cataclysms might have accelerated that, yeah. But you're saying that's from from the fall? That that yeah. pattern has been going on since that long ago? Uh, yeah. That's interesting. All Which right. would actually provide more circumstantial evidence that that's where Eden was originally located. You know? Oh, up at the, uh, up at the North Pole? Yeah, because, you know, as peoples would have moved outward from that, you know, over the years as well, it would make sense for the sun to complement that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that, which is why right now it's basically, you know, the equator is more or less, you know, in the middle of uh, the continents we know of today, you know, out from the center, because it corresponds with uh, where people are living now, you know, their dispersion. But, the, let us consider what evidence Stonehenge Circle and its date of erection provide. Here is a structure, some of whose stones, weighing over 200 tons, were brought 150 miles from the quarries and erected according to a definite plan and for the purpose of fixing the date and position of the summer solstice and the other cardinal points of the compass. Our school books tell us that the early Britons of B.C. times were only skin-clad savages. Yet it is possible that wild savages were able to haul large blocks of stone for over 100 miles over solid ground and then erect them according to a specified plan and to a definite astronomical alignment? <laughs> Common sense answers no. Moreover, we can readily see that there must have been a large population in the land in those early days, for it required thousands of men to move and erect such large stones. But who were those early British astronomers and architects, and from whence did they come, and from, and where did they obtain their science? So I just want to comment on Stonehenge for a bit. You'll see on YouTube now, they're promoting that Stonehenge was totally fake. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. What do you mean fake? Yeah, there, uh, there's uh, videos out there that allege that Stonehenge was built, like, I don't know, like in the 1800s with grains and stuff. Like it's a modern uh, construction, which I think uh, I think that that's false. 
I don't believe that, and I think that that's... The Illuminati, I think, is promoting that kind of stuff because it all works within this epistemology that we've talked about before. Kind of, you know, the same thing with the dinosaurs. They're basically promoting, you know, they're getting people to conclude that everything from the ancient past is fake. So, by necessity, people are going to reject the Bible. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, Um, there are certain things that God has commanded them they have to reveal. Certain clues to the past. But uh, they're trying to provide a false interpretation so that all the stuff as it is uncovered more and more, we don't know how to interpret it and put it all together. Uh-huh. Don't know what to trust and what to believe or not. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh-huh. I think it just works into the whole uh, fakery mindset that they want people to believe because then it makes them... Like I said, it just reduces denialism. You know, it's just, you know, you, you don't know what to believe. You know, you, you don't trust any authorities. You don't trust the witness of history. You don't trust anything in history. You know, I mean, it just, it's a, it's a null epistemology. You can't know anything. You know what I mean? If everything's fake, yeah. how do you determine anything? You just, you know what I mean? So, and it also has the double effect of making you reject anything from history. So you reject, you know, your ancestors, you reject, you know, the knowledge of the ancients. Um, You could see how that could play into their advantage, why they'd want people to believe that. So... It says, uh, here's a structure, some of whose stones, weighing over 200 tons, were brought 150 miles from the quarries and erected according to a definite plan and for the purpose of fixing the date and position of the summer solstice and the other cardinal points of the compass. Oh, I already read that. Okay, sorry. Um, Yeah, right after common sense, answers no. Okay. Moreover, we can readily see that there must have been a large... Okay, I read that too. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So, uh, okay, I found the place where I left off. It says, but who were the, those early British astronomers and architects, and from whence did they come, and where did they obtain their science? Again, the evidence is provided. <clears throat> now, about the year 1700 BC, the 18th dynasty ruled in Egypt, at which time Israel dwelt in that land. Dr. Davidson. D. Davidson in his monumental work, The Great Pyramid, writes on page 5, quote, 18th dynasty Egyptian glazed beads not made elsewhere or by any other Egyptian dynasty other than the 18th and 19th were found at Stonehenge together with beads of Baltic amber. Similar beads of Baltic amber were also found in Egypt in 18th and 19th dynasty remains, end quote. Evidences like these are important missing links, yet the greatest is furnished by Sir Flinders Petre, who found that a circle inside of the Great Stone Circle of Stonehenge has a diameter of 1,163 British inches. This value, approximately 1,162.6 pyramid inches, is known by every astronomer and pyramid student to be the diameter of the solar circle of 3,652.42 inches circumference, or the value of the solar year multiplied by 10. 
Two deductions we must draw from this. First, the builders of Stonehenge knew the accurate value of the solar year, and second, they made use of the pyramid or polar diameter or sacred Hebrew inch. The present British inch is only 11 ten-thousandths smaller than the original inch. Next, the dimensions of Stonehenge Circle, diameter 1,162.6 inches and circumference 3,652.42 inches, are the dimensions of the ancient Egyptian Aurora, A-R-O-U-R-A, a unit of land measure and also represented in the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, as Mr. Davidson has shown. The conclusions we must draw, therefore, from the evidences so far are that the early Britons who built those gigantic structures in such a specific way and to the standard of the polar diameter or Hebrew inch were either Hebrews themselves or progenitors of the Hebrews, as were also the builders of the Great Pyramid, which was erected by the Aryan Phoenicians precisely 1,000 years before Stonehenge Circle. Quote, Lockyer has shown us, writes Davidson, that the pyramid builders of the 4th and 5th Egyptian dynasties must, from their astronomical cult, have come from the region of the Euphrates. He also shows that nearly all the ancient year cults of the Nile, Nile Delta are connected with the Euphradian equinoxial year. Petri, too, finds a Euphradian year origin for the 5th dynasty of Egypt, end quote. Mr. Davidson also quotes D.A. McKenzie from the latter's work, Ancient Man in Britain, quote, At an early period in the early agricultural age and before bronze workings were introduced, England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland were influenced more directly than had hitherto been the case by the high civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia, and especially by their colonies in southwestern Asia. McKenzie, referring to the eminent Belgian archaeologist M. Siret, also writes, quote, Siret has found evidence to show that the tree cult of the Easterners was connected with the early megalithic monuments. The testimony of traditions associates the stone circles, etc., with the Druids, end quote. We are obliged, he writes, to go back to the theory of the archaeologists of a hundred years ago, who attributed the early megalithic monuments to the Druids. The instinct of our predecessors has been more penetrating than the scientific analysis which has taken its place. So I just want to comment on, too, there's etymological evidence that, uh, you know, this theory is true, or that the uh, proposition that, you know, the Adamites were uh, Caucasoid, is true. Yeah. Uh, just just from the name like Saxon, you know, from uh, Sax son, you know, like Isaac's sons. Hmm. And also, uh, one of the Hebrew terms for man was ish, right? Yeah. You've heard of that? means man? Yeah. Brit-ish, uh, the Hebrew term, I think, Brit or Brit, uh, met covenant. So British met covenant man. Huh. And you see the ish in basically all the, a lot of the Caucasoid peoples, you know, like British, English, 
Um, Swedish. Swedish, yeah. Danish. Yeah, uh-huh. There's more. I was thinking of more, but I forgot. But, yeah, uh-huh. So... Says uh, E. L. Gordon, author of Prehistoric London, states on page 22, quote, "The footprints of these first settlers have been traced by the remains of their religious monuments, circles, and mounds, from the district north of the Persian Gulf along the trade route of the Phoenicians to the shores of the Mediterranean. These material remains, when taken in connection with a remarkable affinity in language." The discoveries of modern travelers and the testimony of national traditions afford convincing proof that the original colonies came from Akkad, or Acadia, the southern province of Babylonia. They brought with them their primitive religion. Quote, the first wave of the Aryan family to overspread Europe before Greeks and Romans were heard of. End quote. The earliest recorded history of the British race takes us to Central Asia, the fertile district watered by the Tigris and Euphrates, lying between Mount Ararat on the north and the Persian Gulf on the south. To this country of the ancient Chaldees, the cradle of the human race, the earliest settlers in Britain traced their origin. End quote. All the evidences show that the early British astronomer priests, the Druids, came from the Near East, and Professor L. A. Waddell, in his interesting work, Phoenician Origin of Britain, Scots, and Anglo Saxons, provides the evidence from hundreds of Phoenician coins and, and inscriptions found in both Britain and the East that the early Britons were the seagoing Aryan Phoenicians, who appeared in Western Europe as the Celts with a C or Celts with a K which name can also be traced to ancient Chaldea, from whence indeed they came. So Scottish, there's another one. Yeah, and Irish. Yep. Chapter 2, Who Were the Aryans? It is, quote, whimsical indeed, as Emerson expressed it, that British archaeologists should be content in leaving the origin of their own ancient monuments shrouded in mystery and go exploring all over the world, uncovering the ruins of Asia, Africa, and America, and digging deep in the earth for evidence of missing links of primitive man. I'm sure there's no conspiracy behind that. But there is a reason for their, quote, whims. Up to 1870, several archaeologists were exploring those British antiquities, but their findings were not followed up by the investigators of the last 50 years. Instead, the earlier explorers and their findings have been ridiculed by modern scholars. The reason for it is not far to seek. With the coming of Darwin, Huxley, Spencer, and others, the theory of evolution occupied completely the roost of speculative philosophy and even of science. To the theory of evolution, which demands that man developed from a primate and a savage through various stages until the Greek and Roman culture, certainty that a civilization existed in the British Isles that possessed sufficient science to erect those ancient circles is disastrous. Therefore, our modern investigators, being very anxious to follow in line with the general trend of thought, 
have carefully avoided exploration around the British circles, and what finds have been unearthed have been purposely ignored. But strange to say, even the Orthodox groups have paid no attention to those British antiquities, but their reason for doing so will become obvious as we proceed with our study. Hey, Chris? Yeah. Go ahead and mute me for the next three or four minutes. Okay. All right, you're muted. You're muted. Okay, so the question of, quote, Aryan origin and, quote, Aryan race has been brought prominently before the public since the present German persecution of the Jews began. But it is unfortunate for the German professors, as well as ours, that they do not know that the Jews, as, as well as the Germans, and in fact all of us, are Aryans. The Jews are known to be Semites, i.e. the descendants of Shem, the son of Noah. Since the advent of Thomas Paine and the German higher critics of the Bible, the latter's statements have been questioned and discredited. Yet modern explorations are proving the historicity of the Bible. Ever since the time of Eichhorn, the German critic and Orientalist of a hundred years ago, Oriental scholars have spoken of the Semites as existing for 4,000 years B.C. Now, if those scholars allow that the term Semite is derived from Shem, and Shem lived about the time of the Deluge, given by Scripture as occurring about 2344 B.C., how could the Semitic race have existed for 1,500 years before that time? Orientalists claim, as does Lenormont and others, that the Semitic race originating in Central Asia migrated into Mesopotamia about 3,000 years B.C., where they found a Turanian population, which they quickly overcame and absorbed and founded the Babylonian Empire. This migration of a superior race coming from Central Asia is correct, but as Shem did not come into existence until about 2400 B.C., this race of immigrants have been badly misnamed by the scholars, for they were not the Semites, but their ancestors, the Aryans, the parent white race, the name Aryan being derived from the Sanskrit word Arya, meaning noble. Aryan, therefore, means, quote, the noble race, end quote. The Aryan is none other than the Adamic race, as we shall see presently. A great gulf of difference seems to exist between the findings of science and the orthodox interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Scientists can find traces of man existing for a period of 50 or 100,000 years with reasonable certainty while faithful readers of Scripture insist that the Bible says that the first man was created about 6,000 years ago. The mistake, however, has been with the orthodox interpretation of Genesis. Its first passage reads, quote, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, end quote. When that beginning was is not stated. It may have been 100, 500, or 1,000 million years ago. There is no conflict here with the findings of science, but it must be noticed that there is a great difference between the three principal races of mankind, between the Mongolian or Turanian race, the Negro race, and the white or Caucasian race, and there exists little relationship between the three.
the white race were unquestionably the last comers, being in every way superior to the other two and constituting their leaders and teachers. Moreover, an honest investigation of their origin will show that they appeared suddenly and with a high state of civilization. <clears throat> the answer to that question is given in Genesis 1.26, where we read, quote, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth, end quote. If the Bible translators had translated the original Hebrew word for man, Adam, as Adam instead of as man, there would have been no doubt that the Bible deals only with the Adamic race who were created in the likeness of God, or as I contend, Yahweh, since I think all the races were created in the image of the Elohim, since, you know, the Elohim in Genesis is plural. But uh, Adam was created in the uh, reflection, or in the image of his totemic deity, who was the heavenly Adam, or Yahweh, you know, the Ancient of Days figure, the head of the gods. He was the first emanation from the Higher Father, you know, who has no form or body. He was the first heavenly body to emerge from the Father, you know, the Word, as described in the New Testament, or of Christ, you know. He's the same being. So... who were created in the likeness of God to have dominion over all the earth, i.e. over all the other primitive races. An examination of Young's analytical concordance will show that in over 500 cases, the Hebrew word for man in the Old Testament is Adam, making it self-evident that the Old Testament deals only with what, is, what its Hebrew says, the Adamites. But unfortunately, the translators have read their assumptions into the book, as most people do. Thus, the Old Testament gives us the best, and we may be sure the right explanation of the existence and superiority of the Adamic or white race. It is also well recognized that the white race was the agricultural race, while in older times the other primitive races were chiefly nomads and hunters. This also is proven from Genesis 2.5, which states, quote, And there was not an Adamite to till the ground, end quote. In the second chapter of Genesis, verses 7 and 8 should read, quote, And the Lord formed the Adamite of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Adamite became a living soul. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the Adamite whom he had formed, end quote. All right, hold on, Ross. I'm going to turn a light on here. All right, I'm back. So, however... It also appears that the word, quote, man, is applied only to the Adamic race, according to Max Mueller, the great Oxford scholar who stated, quote, man, privative root, uh, hold on, Ross, my computer's acting up.
Sorry, guys. I'm trying to unmute Ross. I'm having technical difficulties. Give me one second. All right, hold on. Takshu logged me out again, of course. All right. You back? Yeah, I'm here. All right. Got any comments from anything I've said? Or? Uh, you were kind of in the middle of something, so go ahead. And... Okay. All right, well, it said, uh, quote, man, a derivative root means to think. From this, we have the Sanskrit manu, originally the thinker, then man. The name Adam, or Adam, man, a thinker, suggests that the living soul breathed into Adam raised him high above the other existing races. End quote. I would agree. <laughs> I can think of some really racist poems <laughs> right about now. I think the uh, the witness of history and the evidence, all the evidence would be consistent and conform with that. That uh, the Caucasoid race has a far higher capacity for abstraction and abstract thought than any of the other races. Um, strong confirmation for our theory if we wish to call it that we receive from a passage in the Indian Vedas which reads quote Indra alone hath tamed the dusky races and subdued them for the Aryans end quote <laughs> further on in our study we shall see that Indra is the early Indo-Aryan name for Jehovah Indra is the sky deity, right? <laughs> kind of like, like Zeus. Among the dusky races are included the Chinese and other Mongolian or Turanian peoples, the Egyptians, the Negroes, and the primitive people of Europe and the British Isles. A study of scripture and recorded civilization makes it clear that it was this Adamic or Aryan race who were God's appointed builders of civilization and the carriers of messianic tidings from the very beginning, as we shall see in the succeeding chapters. Our next problem is to discover where the Adamic or Aryan race originated. Oh, uh, okay. So here he's going to get into his theory of where Eden is, which I disagree with. He places it in Mesopotamia. I'm going to disagree with that. We disagree with that. So... I don't know. Do you want me to read that, or do you want me to skip that? Uh, I don't know. Sift through it for the for the nuggets of truth. There's got to be a few good ones in there. Okay. Unless it's long as long, you know, pages long. In which case, go ahead and skip it. Uh, uh, okay. So I'll skip ahead to this. It says. 
Um, the, the Chambers Encyclopedia under, quote, Aryan Race and Languages says, quote, the evidence on which a family relation has been established among these nations is that of language. Between Sanskrit, the mother of the modern Hindu dialects of Hindustan, Zend, the language of the ancient Persians, Greek, which is yet the language of Greece, Latin, the language of the Romans, and the mother of the modern Romantic languages, i.e. Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, Celtic, once the language of a great part of Europe, now confined to Wales and parts of France, Ireland, and Scotland. Gothic, which may be taken as the ancient type of the Teutonic or German languages, including English and of the Scandinavian. And Slavonic, spoken in a variety of dialects all over European Russia and a great part of Austria. The researches of philology have within the 19th century established such affinities as can be accounted for only by supposing that the nations who originally spoke them had a common origin. No one of these nations, existing or historical, can claim to be the parent nation of which the others were colonies. The relation among the languages mentioned is that of sisters, daughters of one mother, which perished, as it were, in giving them birth. No monuments of this mother language have been preserved, nor have we any history or even tradition of the nation that spoke it. That such a people existed and spoke such a tongue is an inference of comparative philology, the process of reasoning being analogous to that followed in the kindred science of geology. By skillful interpretation of their indications, aided by the light of all other available monuments, he is able to spell out with more or less probability the ethnical records of the past and thus obtain a glimpse here and there into the gray cloud that rests over the dawn of the ages. When these linguistic monuments are consulted as to the primitive seat of the Aryan nations, they point to Central Asia, somewhere probably east of the Caspian and north of the Hindu Kush and Paro Amisian Mountains. There, at a period long anterior to all European history, while Europe was perhaps only a jungle, or if inhabited at all, inhabited by tribes akin to the Finns, or perhaps to the American Indians, dwelt that mother nation of which we have spoken. From this center, in obedience to a law of movement, which has continued to act through all history, successive migrations took place towards the northwest. The first swarm formed the Celts, who seem at one time to have occupied a great part of Europe. At a considerably later epoch came the ancestors of the Italians, the Greeks, and the Teutonic peoples. All these would seem to have made their way to their new settlements through Persia and Asia Minor, crossing into Europe by the Hellespont, and partly, perhaps, between the Caspian and the Black Sea. The stream that formed the Slavonic nations is thought to have taken the route by the north of the Caspian. In the most ancient Sanskrit writings, the Veda, the Hindus style themselves Aryas, and the name may be preserved in the classic Ari, R-I-I-I, a tribe of ancient Persia, and in the, dist- in the, in, in the district Ariana. Ariana is evidently an old Persian word preserved in the modern native name of Persia, Aaron, A-I-R-A-N, or Iran. 
Arya in Sanskrit signifies, quote, excellent or honorable. Originally, quote, lord of the soil. From a root, R. Lat or are, quote, to plow. <laughs> Distinguishing as in, pillars. As an arable, as an arable land, A-R-A-B-L-E. Yeah, there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good evidence there. Distinguishing tillers or ERs, E A R E R S, of the earth, or it's also in earth, E A R T H, from the nomadic Terranians. <laughs> wow. All this evidence, together with that of the next chapter, should suffice to identify the Aryan with the Adamic race and thus explains satisfactorily the distinctive superiority of the white race above the primitive races. Interesting. Okay. Chapter 3, called uh, Where Was the Deluge? Orthodoxy is held until this day to the belief that the deluge of Genesis was universal covering the whole of the earth. Yet such a belief, although apparently expressed by the translators, is, according to a careful analysis of certain facts of Scripture, an impossibility to say nothing of the recorded facts of Egyptian and Chinese history, nor the impossibility presented by physical science. Once the question of the deluge is settled, another of the obstacles over which the critics and the scientists have stumbled is removed. Okay, so yeah, I, I affirm in, in agreement with that. I, I don't believe the flood was universal. I think it was near near universal. And I don't think you can use scripture to prove it was universal either uh, with the language used because there's many other instances in scripture where it uses that kind of language when it's only referring to a specific area of geography. Like, for instance, when Christ said, you know, go make disciples of all the nations we later find that he didn't literally mean all the nations of the entire earth, right? Right. He just meant all the nations of, like, the Roman province, you know, the Roman area. And uh, the Hebrew word used when it describes the whole earth was... Flooded, you know, the, the word there is arets. Or many other times, like for instance, when God calls uh, Abraham out of his country, or, you know, Ur of the Chaldees, where he lived before, uh, the same word is used there, arets. So it can, it can either mean a, you know, it can mean a limited geographical area. You know what I mean? which is what I think was the, uh, that's what I think it meant, you know, when it was talking about the deluge. It was just the area that I think was flooded for the most part was uh, wherever the the uh, antediluvians were basically living, you know what I mean? That's the part mm-hmm. of the world that was flooded for the most part. Because that was the focal point of God's judgment, you know what I mean? So, 
says, uh, according to Usher's Bible chronology, the deluge occurred in the year 2348 B.C. This is correct to within four years, as Mr. Davidson has found from his careful analysis of Chinese, Babylonian, Hebrew, and Egyptian records presented in his work, Early Egypt, Babylonia, and Central Asia. The correct date for the deluge is from November 1st, 2345, Genesis 7:11, to November 11th, 2344 B.C., Genesis 8:14. Our Halloween and All Souls Days are still kept in commemoration of the deluge. That's highly possible. Highly possible that could have been the origin of All Souls Day, you know. People uh, wailing for their dead that were lost in the deluge. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Mm Mm-hmm. Let us now analyze our data. If the deluge had been universal as orthodoxy assumes it to be, then only Noah's family, consisting of eight persons, was left alive on the whole earth. Bible chronology shows that Abraham was born about the year 2000 B.C. in Ur of the Chaldeans. And ancient Chaldea was at that time a flourishing country with a large population and a certain civilization, as the excavations have shown. It is out of all reason to assume that such a population could have developed from only eight people 350 years previously. Again, as soon as Abram had been called into Canaan, Genesis the 12th chapter, he went at once into Egypt to buy grain, and there, were, and there too was established a great civilization and dense population. Senusert III of the 12th dynasty was Pharaoh at that time. If, as some people believe, the Great Pyramid was built by Shem or Melchizedek, it was built within only one or two or three centuries after the deluge, and how could Egypt have furnished the pyramid builders with 100,000 men every three months if all human beings were destroyed by the deluge only two centuries before? Professor Sace found in a tomb of the 18th Egyptian dynasty at Thebes, which ruled about 1700 B.C., pictures of Negroes as they are today, white-skinned Aryans, brown Egyptians, and typical Mongolians. As those four types of races have remained the same in all the 36 centuries since then, is it reasonable to suppose that those four types could have developed during the six preceding centuries and from the eight white-skinned survivors of the deluge? (laughs) oh man to think I actually used to believe that isn't that crazy yeah me too yeah that's pretty much what the majority of Christians believe on the ceiling of the temple of Dendera in upper Egypt was found one of the few existing ancient representations of the constellations of the zodiac Engraved in copper, on it we find the various star clusters grouped into constellations represented by human or animal figures, such as Virgo, Gemini, Boots, Cassiopeia, Leo, etc. Every one of the major groups represented by human figures show men and women of our Caucasian or Aryan type, entirely different from the Egyptian type. All these evidences show that the Egyptians were not of the Adamic or white race, but were a separate people who had lived in the valley of the Nile for over 50,000 years B.C. 
as Professor Breasted has found, living a primitive existence until the Pyramid Age when members of the Aryans came among them and the Egyptian civilization suddenly burst forth as we find from its ruins. The first Egyptian dynasty began in 3001 BC with King Mina, and an uninterrupted succession of dynasties followed until the 12th, which ended in 2146 BC, as Mr. Davidson has established. The kings of the first dynasty instituted a series of renewal or said periods of 30 years each, which they derived from an earlier civilization. At the end of each period, the co-regent was appointed to carry on the succession as, quote, the king never dies, end quote. The last of these said festivals, the 35th, was celebrated in the second year of Nebtuara, the last king of the 11th dynasty, in 2057 B.C., as Mr. Davidson has established in his early Egypt, Babylonia, and Central Asia, Chart 14. The deluge took place in 2344 B.C. It fell in the reign of Pepi II between the 25th and 26th said festival. There was an uninterrupted succession of kings for 12 for 1,247 years for the first 12 dynasties and an uninterrupted series of said festivals from 3,378 to 2,057 B.C. Egypt felt nothing of the deluge and knew nothing of it until the story was brought to them years later by the survivors. Thus, Egyptian chronology proves that no deluge covered that land. As Genesis 7.20 tells us that the water stood 60 feet above the mountaintops, and some of the mountains are over 6 miles in height, the waters of the flood could, would have covered Egypt 6 miles deep. There is not enough water or moisture in existence on all the earth to accomplish that. If it did, it would have taken Egypt and every other country centuries to recover from such a catastrophe. As it is certain that no deluge was in Egypt, there could therefore have been no universal flood. It is useless for our friends, the fundamentalists, to get vexed on this point and quote scripture, which says that the earth was covered and all flesh died. The word also says in Luke, Luke 2, quote, that all the world should be taxed, end quote. What is meant by this order is that all the world under Roman rule should be taxed. Rome's rule did not reach into China nor into America, and if it had, the Americans would have rebelled. When Genesis, therefore, speaks of the flood covering the earth, it means that part of the earth in which the Adamites lived who sinned against God. The Negroes and the Mongols at that time did not know God's laws, and, quote, where there is no law, there is no transgression, says Paul. Valuable information we get from the Chinese sacred book of the Shu King, which which speaks of Fuhi, the Chinese Noah. Fuhi was, quote, born of a rainbow, end quote. Of him it was also said that he bred and saved seven kinds of animals to be used as a sacrifice. The Chinese Shu King, translated by W. Gornold and referred to by Davidson, places the date of the Chinese deluge within the reign of the emperor Yau from 2356 to 2254, which period includes the Hebrew deluge date of 2344 BC. 
Moreover, according to Mr. Gorn Old, the Shu King gives the epoch of Fuji as 2944 BC, which is 1056 AK from 40, from 4000 BC, the beginning of Adamic chronology. A compilation of the dates of the patriarchs in Genesis 5 will show that Noah was born in the 1056th year from 4000 BC or 2944 BC. As this is the identical date of the epoch of Fuji, the identity between Fuji and Noah is established. Genesis 7:11 states that the flood commenced in the 600th year of Noah's life which added to 1056 AK gives the deluge again as 1656 AK or 2344 BC. In our previous chapter, we have seen, oh, he's going to get into uh, where he thinks that Eden was located again. Well, I'll just read it. It's not very long. It says, In our previous chapter, we have seen that the geographical description in Asiatic tradition fixes the Pamir Plateau as the location of the Garden of Eden, which Ross and I would not affirm. Genesis 3.24 indicates that when Adam was driven out of Eden, he was driven towards the east. The fourth chapter of Genesis tells us of the murder of Abel by Cain and of God's judgment upon Cain. In the 14th verse, the latter answer is, quote, Behold, thou hast driven me out, of this, out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me, end quote. Of whom was Cain afraid? Certainly not of his father and mother, who was, quote, everyone. A careful analysis of these words show that Cain was driven from one earth into another earth, or rather, in plain English, from one country into another. Quote, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, end quote. This verse confirms it, and the land into which he went was still further east, down the valley of the Kashgar River, and there he took a wife. If Adam and Eve and Cain were the only people on the earth at that time, as some folks believe, then how could Cain find a wife? The simple answer is that Cain married a woman of the Turanian or Mongolian race living in the land, and so did the later sons of Adam, for Scripture tells us that, quote, the sons of God married the daughters of men, end quote. The Adamic superiority easily predominated above the other, and by intermarriages among the first families soon established a race of its own, resulting in a raising of the physical standard, quote, there were giants in the earth in those days, end quote, and a lowering of the spiritual standard of the original Adam. Okay, so I basically disagree with most of all that, wouldn't you? Yeah, me too. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting, his opinion. I would affirm, like him, that Cain had some influence in the origin of, like, Chinese civilization. You know, what they're... Evidenced uh, by the dragon worship and stuff? Yeah, the whole dragon kings thing, and, uh, 
Yeah, the dragon worship. Um, so I think there is some truth to that. Tradition goes back before recorded history and has often proven to be more reliable than history. Quote, tradition can neither be made nor destroyed, said Benjamin Disraeli. The traditions of ancient Chaldea, Egypt, and China picture the first civilization as existing in a, quote, world surrounded by high mountains. Oh. Um, he's going to get into where he thinks Eden was again. Let us see. Well, it does say right here, quote, During the later tertiary period, all the desert regions would appear to have been covered by an Asian Mediterranean, or at all events, by vast freshwater lakes, a conclusion which seems to be warranted by the existence of salt-stained depressions of a lacustrine character, by traces of former lacustrine shorelines more or less parallel and concentric, by discoveries of vast quantities of freshwater mollusk shells, the existence of dead poplars, patches of dead and moribund tamarisks, and vast expanses of withered reeds, all these crowning the tops of the jardangs, never found in the wind-scooped furrows, the presence of ripple marks of aqueous origin on the leeward side of clay terraces and in other wind-sheltered situations, and in fact, by the general conformation, contour lines, and shapes of the deserts as a whole. From the statements of old travelers like the Venetian Marco Polo, 13th century, and the Chinese pilgrim Swan Sang, 7th century, as well as other data, it is perfectly evident not only that this country is suffering from a progressive desiccation, but that sands have actually swallowed up cultivated areas within the historical period, end quote. So, I mean, that could be evidence either of the flood or uh, the first century cataclysm. In the Mesopotamian area. Which I think was uh, affected by the flood, by the way, because if Eden was in the north, at the North Pole, the center, then I think that, you know, it would have affected, especially if the continents have moved outward at all from the center as well, from various cataclysms and such, you know. Yeah. They would have been closer than definitely, I think the Mesopotamian area would have been affected which is why, you know, Noah's Ark was brought to the mountains of Ararat. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, so next chapter, chapter 4, the Phoenicians. Having identified the Aryan race with the Adamic or white Caucasian race originating in the mountains of Central Asia, 
which is his belief. Let us now turn to the so-called Phoenicians, who were known to be the leading pioneers, merchants, inventors, and mariners of antiquity, who, coming from north of the Persian Gulf, kept pushing eastward to the shores of the Mediterranean, sailing in their galleys along the coastlands of the Mediterranean, following the setting sun through the pillars of Hercules, sailed northwestward along the Atlantic seaboard of Europe into Britain, along the coasts of Africa, rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and even crossed the Atlantic to the shores of South and Central America, as we have record of. Let us bear in mind here that it was the Greeks who gave these ancient mariners and colonizers the name of Phoenicians, and they existed for a period of over a thousand years before the Greeks and continued in name until the Christian era, their language, the Punic, being the commercial language of antiquity as English is today. Let us now analyze the word Phoenician and Phoenicia. Professor George Rawlinson, in his Story of Phoenicia, tells us that Phoenicia derived its name from the forests of date, or phoenix palms, which grow there in great luxuriance. So far, so good, but whence did the phoenix palm derive its name? Horapollo says, quote, a palm branch was the symbol of the phoenix, end quote. Yes, but what or who was the phoenix? Sankoniathon, the Phoenician writer, states that, quote, phoenix was the first Phoenician, end quote. Phoenix, then, was a man. Now, the word phoenix is the Greek form of the Egyptian term, quote, pa-hanak, end quote, or the house of Enoch. In Hebrew, Enoch also is hanak. Thus, the mystery of that ancient race is solved. They were the sons and descendants of Enoch and of Noah and his three sons, who after the flood started their westward march. Their descendants have kept it up since, settled first north of the Persian Gulf in the bushlands of Mesopotamia, where they found a dusky race and occupation of the land, the ancient Sumerians, and from thence towards the Mediterranean. Chambers Encyclopedia in the article Phoenicia gives us the following account of the origin of the Phoenicians, page 136, volume 8, quote, Two accounts have come down to us of the origin of the Phoenicians. According to Herodotus, Strabo, Pliny, and others, they dwelt anciently on the shores of the Persian Gulf, whence they crossed by land to Syria and settled on the coast of the Mediterranean. Herodotus declares this to be their own account of themselves, and Strabo says that there was a similar tradition among the inhabitants of the Gulf, who showed, in proof of it, Phoenician temples on some of the islands. Justin, on the contrary, in his epitome of Trogus Pompeius, declares that they were driven out of their country by an earthquake and passed to the Mediterranean. End quote. The last account, taken from Justin, again corroborates our story. The Phoenicians were driven out of their own country by an earthquake, which is the earthquake that caused the deluge when the fountains of the deep were broken up. The 10th and 11th chapters of Genesis give us, quote, the register of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, for they had sons born to them after the deluge. I quote here from chapter 10, the first verse of the Fenton translation of the Bible, which is expressed in modern English. The fifth, the fifth verse reads, quote, 
From these they spread themselves over the seacoasts of the countries of the nations, each with their language amongst the Gentile or heathen tribes, end quote. Verses 31 and 32, quote, These are the sons of Shem, by their tribes and by their languages and their countries among the heathen. The above were the families of the sons of Noah and their descendants by tribes. From them they spread themselves among the nations on the earth after the flood, end quote. These verses give us clearly to understand that the sons of Noah spread themselves among the existing heathen nations of that time, and by their mental and physical superiority subdued and mastered them. Quote, All the country was agreed for settled objects, but some of them marching from the east arrived at a plain in the bushland and halted there. End quote. Genesis 11, 1 and 2. The plain in the bushland is the plain of Shinar, which means bushland, and there arose suddenly a new civilization started by the Aryan or noble race, who were considered by native Sumerians as gods. Plate number four shows an ancient statue of an aboriginal Sumerian, which is, has, is distinctly not Caucasoid. Like the white Europeans settling in South Africa are called South Africans, even though the native South Africans are blacks, so are the Adamites settling in Samaria being called Sumerians by our age generally, while in reality they should be called Akkadians. The encyclopedia... Hey, and Chris, yeah. Chris, sorry to interrupt you. Um, on that plate four that shows a native Sumerian, does it have a uh, description of what's in that picture? Like where it's from? Because I want to see that. Uh, are you in front of a computer? Yeah. Okay. It says a Sumerian reproduced from Kings quote a history of Sumer and Akkad end quote. All right, cool. I'm gonna look that up. So just type in Sumerian Kings a history of Sumer and Akkad in the images and see what comes up. Just ask if you need me to repeat that. No, I got so, it. So, okay. Uh, okay, so the Encyclopedia Britannica under, quote, Sumer and Akkad shows that the terms Sumerian and Akkadian are interchangeable and both refer to the people of early Mesopotamia, but it also appears that the term Sumerian should be applied more to the aboriginal blacks and Akkadians to the invading Adamites. As the word Sumer is derived from Shinar, the quote, bushland, it indicates therefore that Sumerian applies to the Aborigines. On the other hand, the word Akkad means, quote, mountains, and corroborates our contention that the Akkadians or Aryans came from the mountains. Mr. Davidson, in his notes to chart 30 of his Babylonia and Central Asia, says, quote, The migration into Western Asia of the survivors of the parent body of the Adamic race of Central Asia in the 23rd century B.C. begins a new chapter in the history of the race. In their landlocked earth, they had been, quote, one language and one speech. This condition the survivors of the new race endeavored to perpetuate in their settlement in Babylonia. By building an imposing city and tower, they hoped to re-centralize the race. In this aim, they were defeated and were, quote, scattered abroad amongst the primitive races, 
and the descendants of the early Adamic settlers, quote, that they might not understand one another's speech. In the tenth chapter of Genesis, therefore, in what Professor Sace discovered to be a statement of the geographical distribution of the white race, the races of the Gentile world are described as territorially subdivided, according to the, quote, families of the sons of Noah, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood, end quote. Did you find it? No, I'm still looking. Okay. It's a little picture of a little short guy, like, clasping his hands together. Oh, yeah, I see it. The little black statue? Yeah. And the nose yeah, like is slightly little... damaged? I don't know. But he's, yeah, uh, he's like, it. his hands are folded together in front of his chest. Yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah. Apparently that's an Aboriginal Sumerian, you know? I mean, definitely not a Caucasoid. Yeah, he could well be uh, Chinese. That's what Maybe I was thinking. Maybe a little bit less uh, almond-shaped eyes, a little bit wider, but he could definitely yeah. be an Oriental person. Yeah, uh-huh. Look like it to me, too. So it says, uh, the earliest Adamic settlers in Babylonia and Egypt introduced organized cultivation into the valleys of the Tigris, Euphrates, and Nile. The low-lying river flats were reclaimed from the rule of the annual flood, and scientific irrigation was established to bring life and prosperity to age-long neglected swamps and alluvial wastes. The swamp age, when the annual flood held its devastating rule, was long afterwards remembered in Babylonia and later Babylonian references to this time, confused the ruling conditions then with the conditions of the later deluge in Central Asia. The Sumerian account of the WB Prism 444 therefore states that the deluge, quote, entered the land and that only five cities existed in the times described as preceding the so-called post-diluvian period. These five cities are Eridu, Bad-Tibara, Larak, Sippar, and Surupak. Quote, the beginning of history is placed at Eridu, the city of the water god Ea, or Enki. God of wisdom and mysteries. This clearly means that the first Adamic settlement was founded at Eridu on the ancient coastline of the Persian Gulf, and that by the time the other four cities were all established, Babylonia had been reclaimed from the rule of the, quote, entering flood, end quote. At this time, I wish to say that there are evidences which indicate that enterprising adventurers of the Adamites left their Asiatic mountain home all through the 16 centuries that preceded the flood and established colonies in various parts of the earth. In fact, there is good reason to believe that Cain, who became a wanderer, migrated into the valley of the Euphrates as early as 3800 B.C. and brought with him the first civilization and also the devil worship, as he was of that evil one, the devil, as Paul expressed it. Many historians place the beginning of Babylon at 3800 B.C., Cain is also believed to have been the originator of the Chinese dragon worship. It is generally accepted that the kings of the first six dynasties of Egypt were of the Aryan race, and with them, Egypt's high civilization suddenly developed. Undoubtedly, the Minoan civilization of Crete derived its origin from early Adamic pioneers also, 
And, of course, we know today that the Great Pyramid was built 300 years before the Deluge by an architect and master masons of the Adamites who came into Egypt for that purpose and then departed again. Regarding this, Mr. Davidson makes the following comment, quote, To enable the massive works of construction that were planned in each primitive country to be executed to the building standard of the building race, the primitive native races were trained on a mass production basis of organization to participate in the execution of highly skilled work in successive relays of semi-skilled and unskilled labor. In the case of the Great Pyramid, it is essential that the unskilled native workmen should be instructed in successive stages in the art of quarrying and in the handling and transportation by land and water of large masses of stone. It was necessary also that the principles of mass masonry design and construction should be acquired by the Egyptian native workmen, and that these principles should be developed to perfection under Egyptian conditions. About two centuries passed in the acquirement of this necessary experience, an experience that comprised the experimental construction of many minor works in mass masonry and several types of pyramid design, before the requisite standard of workmanship was attained for the construction of the Great Pyramid. With this standard attained, the Great Pyramid was built to monumentalize the supreme achievement in mass masonry construction within the entire span of all ages of material civilization and to enshrine therein, in comparatively imperishable form, the revelation of the gospel of salvation and the revelation of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven on earth. End quote. that's possible. I mean, we can't know for certain about any of that, but interesting nonetheless. With the coming of the Adamic survivors, the sons of Noah, whom we have identified as the Aryan Phoenicians, begins the history of the various kingdoms of Mesopotamia. You're still there, right? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. The 10th chapter of Genesis tells us in verses 8 to 10 of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, quote, and the capitals of his kingdom were Babel, Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalina in the bushland, or Shinar. The King James Version says, quote, the beginning of his kingdom, end quote. In neither version is it stated that Nimrod founded these cities, but rather that he extended his rule over them, which again confirms the belief that the Adamites or Aryan Phoenicians came into Chaldea, conquered it, and gave it the benefit of their civilization and culture. It is quite possible, indeed, that Shurukin or Sargon of Akkad, who conquered Babylon in 2231 BC, is the Nimrod of Scripture, the name of the mound of Nimrud, or Raud, N-I-M-R-O-U-D, covering the remains of Nineveh, commemorates his name. It is to this period that the later Greek writers trace the origin of the Phoenicians who began their trading and navigation first along the shores of the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and after their occupation of Canaan along the coastlands of the Mediterranean. We must, of course, always bear in mind that in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries after the Adamic Deluge, i.e. in the 23rd, 22nd, 21st, and 20th centuries B.C., the Aryan Phoenicians could not have been very numerous in population, but every one of them counted and left his influence among the natives. 
in the same way that the Anglo-Saxon missionaries or traders of our time have a lasting influence, for good or bad, among the natives of Central Africa or Oceania. From Genesis 10, 6 through 20, it will be seen that Nimrod was a son of Ham as well as was Canaan, after whom the land of Canaan was named. As upon Ham and his descendants had fallen the curse of Noah, we can readily see that that branch of the Phoenicians most readily fell into the vices of the aboriginal Sumerians and too readily adopted the worship of Baal and all its abominations, all in the midst of an otherwise high civilization, for instance, that of the Hittonites, who were the sons of Heth, a son of Canaan. Of Japheth's sons, we read in Genesis 10, 2-5, quote, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Thubal, and Misek, and Theros, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Ripoth, and Tagarma, and the sons of Javan, or Ion, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and the Dodanim. From these they spread themselves over the sea coasts of the countries of the nations, each with their languages among the Gentile tribes, end quote. That's from the Fenton translation. Apparently they were the first to spread themselves along the coastlines of the countries. Three of the names are of particular interest to us here. Gomer, Javan, and Tarshish. Gomer means, quote, darkness. Ptolemy, on his map of the world, has England named, quote, Javan, end quote, which seems to indicate that some of Javan's descendants settled there. After Tarshish, the son of Javan, ancient Spain was named, or in fact, it seems the whole of the maritime possessions of ancient Israel, as we read in 1 Kings 10.22, 22.48, and 2 Chronicles 9.21, and also in Jonah 1.3. Let us now turn to the line of Shem, who was the father of the children of Eber, i.e. the Abiri, Abiri, or Hebrews. Until this day, it is common usage to think of the Hebrews as the Jews, and even learned professors and doctors of divinity speak of them as one and the same people. Scripture makes a sharp distinction between the houses of Israel and Judah, as the present writer has shown in his Destinies of Israel and Judah. And from chapter 12 of this book, it will be seen that the Jews of today do not even represent the whole house of Judah. The word Eber, or Heber, Heber, or H-E-B-E-R, means, quote, colonizer, end quote, in the Hebrew-Phoenician language. And it is a striking fact that his descendants, the Hebrew Phoenicians, have been the greatest colonizers and mariners in the world from the time that they settled in the bushland of Chaldea, 22 centuries B.C. until this day, dominating every race with whom they came in contact. The centuries following the deluge compose one of the most dynamic epochs of history, for during that time there arose along the Euphrates and Tigris the Chaldean civilization, which has baffled the archaeologists since it arose within such a short period, like that of the Egyptian during the Pyramid Age a few centuries before it. And the only explanation that can be given for the sudden development of both is that the Egyptian had its conception through the influx of the Aryan pyramid builders before the deluge and the Chaldean through the influx of the sons of Noah, the sons of Enoch, the Aryan Phoenicians, among whom the Semites easily took the leading part.
This, then, explains the advanced state of scientific achievement we find in early Chaldea, particularly in mathematics and astronomy, which latter knowledge gave rise to the famous astrology of the Chaldeans, the name, in fact, being synonymous with wisdom. The early Chaldean priests were genuine astronomers. They knew the accurate value of the solar year, divided the day into 24 hours, and the circle into 360 degrees. Their months consisted of 30 days each. They knew the 12 signs of the zodiac, and from its constellations developed their famous astrology. Yet the human faces in the zodiacal constellations show that the zodiac did not originate in Chaldea, nor Egypt, nor India, but with the earlier Adamites, for the faces depicted are pure Aryan, like those of the Anglo-Saxons of today. The priests of Egypt also had knowledge of the rudiments of astronomy and knew certain astronomical values. Yet the existence of certain values connected with the procession of the equinoxes has shown to modern scholars that these peoples had rules and methods of calculation, yet did not know the principles that formed the basis for their calculations. And it is only too evident that the Egyptian, Chaldean, Indian, and Chinese astronomy is but inherited from the earlier Adamites. A definite statement concerning this Adamic origin of astronomy and mathematics is given by Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his Antiquities of the Jews, quote, They, the Sethites, also were the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom which is concerned with the heavenly bodies and their order, and that their inventions might not be lost before they were sufficiently known upon Adam's prediction that the world was to be destroyed they made two pillars, one in brick and one in stone. They inscribed their discoveries on them both to exhibit their discoveries to mankind. Now this, pil the pillar of stone, remains in the land of Syriad, or Egypt, unto this day, end quote. You know why they made two pillars? Uh, I think I do. <laughs> why? Uh, esoteric representation of uh, uh, father and mother? Well, that could be, but this was actually in an extra-biblical book. It describes why Adam told Seth to make two pillars. Oh, the two trees, right? No, it was to resist uh, the two cataclysms. Oh, he was to make uh, one a brick what would the brick one be to resist uh I mean one was to resist the water and one was to resist the fire, basically. Yeah. I don't know which one would be which, but brick or stone. But yeah, the Egyptian tradition preserved by the cops in the Akbar Ezaman states that the vision appeared to Surid three hundred years before the flood that the Great Pyramid was built as the result of this vision, and that it contained, quote, the wisdom and acquirements in the different arts and sciences, the sciences of arithmetic and geometry, that they might remain as records for the benefit of those who could afterward comprehend them. The position of the stars in their cycles, together with the history and chronicle of time past, of that which is to come and every future event which would take place in Egypt, end quote. This pillar in the land of Egypt is the Great Pyramid of Giza, built by an Adamic architect 300 years before the Flood, from 2658 to 2628 B.C. 
Egyptian tradition tells us that the architect's name was Sisithris or Sesorthos, which when carefully analyzed is a composition of Enoch and Noah. The Chinese sacred volume of the Shu King also affords confirmation that the line of Enoch and Noah were the originators of the science of astronomy. Regarding Fuhi, who is the Chinese Noah, the Shu King states that he, quote, constructed astronomical tables, assigned figures to the heavenly bodies, and taught the science of their motions, end quote. Now, Genesis 5, 21 through 24 tells of Enoch or Hanak, Fenton translation, quote, and Hanak lived until the age of 65 years when Methuselah was born to him. And Hanak walked with God after Methuselah had been born to him. And the whole lifetime of Hanak was 365 years. And Hanak walked with God, and he did not die, God having taken him to himself, end quote. It is worthy of note that the length of Enoch's life was 365 years, which is plus one quarter the length of the solar year, expressed in years. This period is the ancient Phoenix cycle, four of those cycles, or 1,461 years, forming one Sothic cycle, ended in 1917 B.C., the year of the call of Abraham. This Sothic cycle had its origin in 622 A.K., the year of Enoch's birth. The Book of Jubilees is one of the non-canonical books of the Bible, yet it contains valuable information concerning the first 2,500 years of Adamic history, ending about the time of the Exodus from Egypt. In its fourth chapter, we read of Enoch or Hanak, quote, he was the first one among the children of men that are born on the earth to learn writing and knowledge and wisdom. And he wrote the signs of heaven according to the order of their months in a book, that the sons of men might know the time of year according to their separate months. He was the first to write a testimony, and he testified to the children of men concerning the generations of the earth, and explained the weeks of the jubilees, and made known to them the days of the years, and arranged the months, and explained the Sabbaths of the years as we made them known to him. And what was and what will be, he saw in a vision of the night in a dream. And as it will happen to the children of men and their generations until the day of judgment, he saw and learned everything, and wrote it as a testimony, and laid that testimony on the earth over all the children of men and for their generations." End quote. At the end of chapter 2, I have quoted from Chambers' Encyclopedia regarding the fact that the roots of most of our languages can be traced to the Aryan parent stock, which had its home in Central Asia. From the same encyclopedia, I quote here a paragraph from its article, Alphabet, quote, To a French scholar, M. de Rouge, belongs the honor of having demonstrated the true origin of the alphabet. Several classical writers, including Plato, Diodorus, Plutarch, and Tacitus had stated in general terms the belief or tradition of the ancient world that the Phoenicians had obtained the alphabet from Egypt, while in modern times not a few attempts had been vainly made to derive the several Phoenician letters from suitable hieroglyphic pictures. But it was only in 1859 that de Rouge pointed out that the, that the prototypes of the Phoenician letters must be sought not in the hieroglyphics of the monuments, but in certain cursive, quote, hieratic or priestly characters, so extremely ancient that they had fallen into disuse at the time of the Hebrew Exodus. 
This form of hieratic writing is known to us almost, almost exclusively from a single manuscript, the Paris Prisse, as it is called, which was found in a tomb belonging to the 11th dynasty and is therefore much older than the Shepherd Kings, end quote. Professor Waddell, on page 5 of his Aryan Origin of the Alphabet, refers to Sir Flinders Petre, who found in the royal tombs of Menes and his, and his first dynasty at Abydos characters of the so-called Phoenician alphabet. This discovery proves, first, that the Egyptian hieroglyphic characters developed later than the Phoenician, and second, that the kings of the first Egyptian dynasties were of the Aryan race. It is possible, therefore, that in those early Phoenician characters we have the original alphabet developed by Enoch and given to him by divine inspiration. Plate number five gives us a comparative table of the Phoenician, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin alphabets taken from Chambers Encyclopedia. It is evident from this table that both the Greek and Latin are derived from the Phoenician. The Hebrew characters have been developed since the time of Christ. Hebrew is the language of the Jews, which the latter developed in Babylonian captivity. Israel, before that, spoke the Phoenician dialect and wrote the simpler Phoenician characters. The first letter of the Phoenician is Aleph and is essentially the same as our Latin letter A, only the Phoenician character is lying on its side. It pictures the horns of a bull, or Taurus, and conveys to us the fact that at the zero dating of Adamic chronology, the 22nd of September, 4000 BC, the fall equinox, or nocturnal sign, lay midway between the horns of Taurus, the bull. Hence Aleph, or Alpha, or A, is the first letter. From the article Alphabet in the Encyclopedia Britannica, I quote the following passages, quote, it is well known that most of the ancient nations ascribed a divine origin to their system of writing. The native Egyptian term for writing meant, quote, writing heavenly words, end quote. Professor Buchanan, in his The World and the Book, quotes on page 219 from Patriarchal Age by Smith, quote, Yet the best authorities concur in ascribing the introduction of letters into Egypt to Thoth or Thent, the Hermes of Greek, and the Mercury of Latin mythology. It consequently becomes an important part of the inquiry to ascertain at what time this individual lived. As in Egyptian annals, we meet with several of that name. This seems to be a difficult task. It appears from a general view of the subject that in the earliest age of Egyptian history, or rather prior to the commencement of authentic history, a person of this name flourished who, from his great knowledge, was supposed to be more than mortal. From this circumstance, when an individual in after ages appeared to surpass his contemporaries in wisdom, he was said to be inspired by the spirit of Thoth, or to be another incarnation of that deity. End quote. To Thoth, the Egyptians attributed the invention of letters, as there is reason to believe that Thoth is identical to Sesorthos or Sisithras, and as the latter, as already stated, is a composite figure of Noah and Enoch, it appears then that Enoch is the inventor of writing and of astronomy. Or rather to him was that knowledge revealed from God, as Genesis in the Book of Jubilees tells us. And Enoch, or Hanach, was the first Phoenician in his house, the Pa-Hanach, were the Aryan Phoenicians. 
all the coordinated evidence of scripture, Babylonian, Egyptian, and Chinese traditions and history, the naming of the zodiacal constellations, the monuments of language, and the Great Pyramid confirm it. All right. So next will be Chapter 5. I think I'm going to stop here. Did you have any comments? So they're, they're saying that the word Phoenix or Phoenician comes from Pahanak. House yeah. of uh, Enoch. Uh-huh. Did they? I, I know that was a, a while back, but did they say where that that first uh, element came from? The pa part, like what no, language I don't that think, is? I don't think he said. Uh-huh. Let me go back and try to find that though. Uh, don't do it on the call. It'll take a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember him saying though. Okay, that's all right. Man, there's a lot of stuff to make me think, dude. Oh, well, you're I'm right. not sure I, about that. Uh, I got it right uh, here. The word phoenix is the Greek form of the Egyptian term Pahanak. I'm from Egyptian, okay. The house of Enoch. Uh-huh. Uh, I should mention... Have I mentioned it before? I think I've mentioned it before on the show that... Uh, a possible uh, conspiracy theory here is that they're lying to us about who the descendants, um, who the peoples today are descended from, as far as oh, yeah. uh, the Adamite peoples, uh, you know, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They say that the European white peoples are um, Japhethites, and, and possibly the Indo Aryans, which are the Persian and northern India. Uh, white uh-huh. peoples, um, which makes us wonder, you know, um, if the diaspora of Israel um, got dispersed into the lands of the north, which is what many of these uh, passages in the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament, which talk about the second exodus to come, um, say happened to them, mm-hmm. then... Uh, yeah, those well, would be that'd be Europe, the, the European. Right, right. But um, are you know the question is still in my mind. Um, did they get dispersed and intermarry with the Japhethites, or are they lying to us about who the Japhethites are? Like are oh, these yeah. modern peoples, you know, just have a little bit of a diaspora bloodline, or are they whole nations of diaspora descendants? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the latter. But well, that would mean that the, many of the modern European nations um, are Semite, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Which leaves the question then: Who really are the Japhethites? Mm-hmm. That's a good question, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a question to pursue, though. And the languages, too. Yeah, I know. Well, it's hard to pursue when, you know, when there is no right. information to look, you know, it's all been covered up. But, um, you know, such people groups as the Finno-Ugric uh, peoples, 
you know, the Finns and the Estonians and the Hungarians and some other uh, small pockets of people in Russia, um, as well as the Basques. They're all white as far as skin color. So is that evidence of a Japhethite family or family of languages that have been, you know, split up and, you know, a lot, I mean, they're small pockets now. So if that was the Japhethite group, then those are the only few pockets left of their languages, maybe the Turkic languages, but then that's assuming those aren't Turanian. That was the language you were mentioning, right? Turanian, Turanian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Anyway, it's it's all my theorizing. That'd be a I good know. theory that those are Japhethites. Yeah. Although... I mean, I, I don't know if I agree with Winchell that... I don't know if I think that there was any white pre-Adamites. I'm not sure if I uh, buy into that, you know? Yeah. I think I might have some problems with that. Anyway, I know the... Well, the Finns and the Estonians and Hungarians have, you know, they've got pretty good small little countries or civilizations. They're, they certainly got some pro-civilization Adamite qualities to them. And then, but the smaller ones, such as the Sami people, who they used to call the Laps, which are in northern Finland and some in Russia, of that same language family, uh, they're more nomadic, some of them. You know, traditionally they've been reindeer herders. You can't farm much up there, so mm-hmm. but, you know that could be just circumstances force you to do what you have to do to survive, and then that becomes a tradition. Or that right. could be called a hunter-gatherer, lower form of civilization, I guess. But you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. And then the Basques, at least as far as recorded history goes, they've been farming. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't know. I don't know if that's... I mean, that could just be something learned right, from Adamites. Right. So, again, I don't know. I, I, this is all my hope that I am an Adamite, at least by my, my uh, paternal bloodline, which decides your tribe. But, uh, you know, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got, so... This is this is probably one of the most fascinating subjects, in my opinion, dude. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I got a dude. I got a ton of books on it that I haven't even read yet. A ton of books on this subject. So. And then I know I have mentioned this on a previous show before, but uh, the sons of Gomer, son of Japheth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you mentioned them. You read that whole. Genesis 10, Table of Nations. Uh, they're, they're Ashkenaz, Rifath, and Togarma. Yeah. Um, there are apparently ancient uh, records from Assyria which mm-hmm. mention a people group which they call the Askuza or the Ashkuza or Ashkuzai or uh, Ishkuzai, all variants of the same name. Um, and this is thought to be, by some, um, a variant of that name of that first son of Gomer, Ashkenaz. Um, the in the letter in in at least in modern Hebrew, it's very similar to the letter for 
the U sound or the V sound, uh, Vav is the letter's name. Nun and Vav, because um, they're very similar letters. So they think maybe there is a spelling um, scribal. Uh, hold, hold on, I got to sneeze. Ah. Hey, no problem. <laughs> Pardon me. All right. Um, they think it could be a slight spelling error but then you're this theory that's put forth in these uh, what what do you call it British Israelism, Anglo-Israelism Christianity um, is that that I'm sorry is that the uh, that people group that is described there was actually that's the name that's the same variant of uh uh, the Saxons or Isaac's sons. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's hard to know what to believe. And then the other common, let's see, what was it? Oh, yeah. There's a common uh, similar name throughout old Europe, various tribes and nations. Uh, and it looks like a variant of that name Gomer, the son of Japheth the father of Ashkenaz. Um, you can see it in the Welsh name for Wales, uh, Gomeraig, the Welsh name for the Welsh language, uh, Cymru. And then you can see it in the names of various tribes throughout mainland Europe, the Cimmerians, the Cimbri, um, other ones throughout. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Christian identity theory is that that is a variant of the name King Omri, who was, was that the king at the time of the northern tribes' captivity and exile? I believe so. Mm-hmm. So there's there's two theories there, and I don't know what to believe because both of them sound plausible, but, you know, we have to figure out who really are the Semites and who really are the Japhethites and whether the, the traditional interpretation is trustworthy or whether that's... Um, Tier one propaganda, and they're lying to us. Mm-hmm. That's all. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Ross. And uh, we'll have to continue this next time. Mm-hmm. Tell me the name of that upcoming next chapter. Uh, hold on. Covenant race. Ooh, this will be interesting then. Mm-hmm. All right, I look forward to that, Chris, and I uh, right. appreciate you letting me on your call. As always, uh-huh. it's a pleasure. All right. Well, thanks I'll for coming on, time. man. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, Adios. bye.